I was there with a cup of tea and I listened to about um, 50 different like Czech pieces and it was just not okay and then I got to this one I was like I think I found it <laughs> by this point I was like I yes I'm just gonna do this piece <laughs> Hello and welcome to Classical Music Now, a podcast by No Dice Collective presented by me, Joe Chesterman March. And I'm so excited you're here. This podcast has been a year in the making and I can't wait for you to hear it. But first, a little bit about this podcast as a whole, what you can come to expect in the episodes in the future. The idea is that, as the title suggests, it's all about classical music today. So rather than looking at composers in the past or musicians in the past, it's more about what's happening now. So people creating music, composers, music creators, the performers performing that music, talking to them, the relationship with the composer perhaps, as you'll find in this episode, and also the people doing the organising, the often unsung heroes of the classical music world, and we'll hear from one of those in a few episodes time. So I'll talk to you about this episode in a second. The next episode what you can expect down the line um, is a roundtable discussion with composer David McFarlane and writer Greg Kearns on their collaboration for our last Christmas project, titled after the legendary George Michael, but also after the Christmas apocalypse, it being literally the last Christmas. Um, it's a really fun episode. Uh, we get on really well. So there were lots of tangents and we actually spent about half the episode talking about workshops and participatory music and how that might actually apply to uh, composer workshops to put people at ease. And uh, we also talk about some of David's musical influences and Greg's writer influences. Um, Episode after that, our third episode, is a mid-rehearsal interview with Adam and Reiki of Manchester Collective, who are a really exciting group in Manchester. If you haven't been to one of their concerts, one of their projects, you really should do. Um, And we have a bit of a chat about storytelling, musical programming, We'll be releasing a new episode at the beginning of each month, so it's a monthly podcast. So on to today's episode, it's about a performance created over a distance of thousands of miles between pianist Jasmine Allpress and composer Yuri Kaderabek. You often hear about remote work in offices and tech companies, but how does that work in music? Well, the piece they worked on, Hindiish, is a real amalgam of styles from different cultures, like the Hindu of the Baka people that the title comes from, as well as uh, a bit of boogie-woogie in there as well, actually. Um, I asked Yuri how you can possibly create a coherent piece from all these disparate elements, and also Jasmine on how do you join it all together in performance. So I'm chatting with Jasmine from a practice room in the Royal Northern College of Music. Uh, but first, here's Yuri summing up the piece. This piece is sort of reflection of the change in uh, relationship to piano. So all those cliches, not not just rock and roll and and pop music, but uh, also classical music. I was seeing it as part of the end of year recital. I was playing Janacek Sonata, and part of the criteria for the recital was you have to have a post-1980 piece. Um, and so I was like, well, to sort of compliment the Anacek, I'll do a Czech piece. And it was basically just like a big Google search of anything modern and Czech that was written post-1980. And I found this piece, because there was a lot of other stuff out there and it just didn't appeal, but this one was really cool. So, mm. yeah, I basically found it on YouTube and then found um, Yuri's website and emailed him and asked for the score. It was really good. He sent me, like, there's some different emails. We kept on emailing. Um, and he sent me all these um, sort of tips on how to play the piece, like different ways of how he wanted it to play. And then um, 
after that he was like send me a recording and I couldn't get back to you so I sent him a recording and then he was really helpful and then we ended up Skyping sort of later on and then he basically just went through the whole piece and was like oh well this 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 and this and this and yeah it's really good uh, okay. <laughs> so he had quite a specific vision of how the piece would come out yeah I think so um, and I think also because this other guy had played it before meant that he sort of knew exactly sort of what he wanted. But he was very open to like my own interpretation. You know, when you are a pianist, which I am originally, you deal with the subject of piano all, all your life. And it was quite essential to me to leave, just to give up practicing piano, to start composing deep enough. I've listened to the other version on YouTube. It sounds like you've got quite a specific take on it in comparison. Like, it feels like there's much more like dynamic yeah, contrast. I don't know. I think because I, I deliberately didn't listen to his recording oh, after I'd listened to it the first time. Because I was like, if there's only one recording, then I'm just going to get sucked into playing it that way. So yeah. I didn't, and then sort of just took Kiri's advice. And then afterwards, I listened back to it, and I was like, well, that's a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> I've done this a bit rogue, but um, yeah, no, it was fine. <laughs> There's a lot of sort of development on the ideas and actually it becomes quite technical, um, technically difficult anyway. And I remember speaking to him about it and going, this is really hard, especially rhythmically as well. And you think, oh, it's fine because it's just how you would sing it. But still, it's like totally different from sort of just sitting at the piano and playing something because it's got to be so rhythmic, rhythmically precise. But he was, he was a pianist before he was a composer. That's why it's difficult. <laughs> I really needed to give up practicing piano, and really after that, I started hearing music in a much more complex way and in colors. I became sensitive to tuning again. It's like quite repetitive, but yeah. there's these like slight changes of timing, aren't there? Which yeah. look quite tricksy to play. Yeah, they are, especially like as when the hands are different sort of rhythmically and then um the breasts throw you off yeah <laughs> I remember when I was skyping him and I was playing it and he was just on the other end going do it again he was like no no it's still not quite right do it again and I'm just like going, oh gosh <laughs> it was a lot of metronome practice because then it's got like nine tuplets and like deck tuplets if that's the right word in it as well yeah were you having to be quite precise with that as well for you really yeah I think Actually, it worked quite well because each section you had to work at so hard that actually you found that you'd learned the piece a lot better by the time you'd sort of got to the end because it wasn't just like you can read through and get to the end and play it. It was like you have to work at this and make sure that it's all like really rhythmically precise and like totally accurate before you can sort of put it all together, which I think was a good thing. Um, and actually, I think that was what sort of intrigued me as well because it was just like, this is a mad piece, I want to play it, kind of thing. So it being harder kind of made it easier? Sort of. I think, yeah, because you get a sort of a greater depth of like, understanding of how it works, putting it together, rather than sort of reading through, yeah, you can, you can play it, but what does it mean, kind of thing. Whereas if you've got it, all the notes there, you have to make sure it's so precise, and the rhythm's there, and you've got to do it with a metronome, and do it, like, hand separately for ages and ages and ages. Then when you finally put it together, it's like, ah, that's how this piece works. And you can kind of put it all together from there, so. You never really have the interpretation in mind completely as a composer. Or I don't want to, actually. 
I like the element of interpretation of the different person. So I hope I didn't tell her too much. I don't want to restrict them in the interpretation. I, I want to say things when collaborating in person. I want to say things which are necessary for understanding the piece, but not more. And sometimes they are desperate because they want to know more. I just remember thinking, this is really cool. There's obviously like there's the jazz references, this kind of thing that was really good. And playing it to other people, you don't say anything, and then it gets that bit, and you can see everyone's like, this is kind of weird, but I'm also enjoying it, sort of thing. That I think it's just complete, like, let go. But then at the same time, it's also really technically difficult. So you've got to look like you're enjoying yourself whilst, like, properly concentrating at the same time. Because <laughs> to me, it seems, like, comical. Yeah. Like, in a good way. Yeah. But it's got this quite kind of serious beginning but there's all different shades within the seriousness. But then there's just kind of little splashes of, of lightness in it as yeah, well. Yeah, I think that works really well. It's like, I guess there's a lot of like folk references with the whole, the, the pygmy tune and like the klezmer. That when it gets to like the boogie boogie stuff, it's also just kind of like, yeah, let's just chuck that in there as well. <laughs> let's just make a big mishmash of everything. But yeah, it's got that kind of like robustness that I like about it as well. Is the idea that it's all various cliches glued together that you then put your own spin on is there a line between the irony of it and the sincerity of it being you know your own piece yes irony irony definitely irony it's just uh idea of integrating them but again working with them so making them an element which gets through various processes like shrinking uh, turning so they they are not there as pure quotations but they are integral parts of the piece, not just quotations. And are those transformations how they become your motifs rather than just generic then? Yes, and also just the repetition. Just when you hear those elements repeated, repeatedly, your perception of those elements changes when they get repeated. To me, the element that gets repeated the most seems to be the first motive with the long and the short alternating notes and it kind of catches you out. Is that one of the cliches? Um, maybe, maybe I shouldn't call them cliches because they're cliches for me. Uh, like sometimes I, I laugh when I when I hear those things because as a composer we are very sensitive to how the cuts are solved by figurations or certain harmonic progressions which is very typical classical period. Uh, when you hear them you kind of smile or even laugh because you are oh the composer needed to get from this key to another key so he made the progression which I actually actually maybe more like than hate. No, I, I'm smiling and, and, and laughing. And also there is this, this uh, African music, pygmies aspect. Yeah, the, the Hindu Mainly rhythmical, yeah. Was that something you've been aware of for a while then? Because, I mean, to many people, that's kind of the furthest away from a cliche you could get. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's a good point. Of course, composers love African music. Mm. But we have such uh, masterworks, you know, like uh, Ligeti's Piano Concerto. It's hard to do something with that inspiration. So my approach is this, to combine this with something 
almost opposite, like very traditional music of pygmies, you know, the most the most natural thing you find, actually. And putting that beside cliches from European classical music and jazz rock music is actually very, um, the contrast is enormous. So there is this constant tension between very distant worlds. You're there staring at the first page going, it just repeats itself and repeats itself. How do you kind of make it sort of interesting to listen to? Because it's interesting to play, but obviously if you're listening to something over and over again, it can get a bit repetitive. So yeah, I don't know. I think I just I went around different things of how to play it. And yeah, and it always came back to the Pygmy tune and how they would do it. And so I suppose you listened to the Pygmy tune. I did, but I only found it quite like a lot later on. So I'd learned the piece for a while. And I was like, oh, I wonder what the Pygmy tune actually sounds like in real life. And I found it. And I found the YouTube video and I was like, he's literally taken this sort of note for note. And did you feel like you were having to really refine the kind of characters of the different sections as well? Was that part of the technical yeah. work? I think just having sort of played it a bit, got to grips with the sort of the notes of it. Um, I think because the beginning bit kind of goes on for quite a while, I was like, this to try and like bring the interest and stuff. And I'm quite a big person, believer in sort of making things really interesting that um, I really wanted to make, especially the middle section, really different to the other sections with like still that continuity of it. Yeah, is that the slower um, section? The slower section. Yeah. Um, and because Yuri was so precise on you, I don't want that much pedal, that by the middle section I was like, it needs some. <laughs> I'm gonna add some in, um, which I think worked well with that bit um but I think it was nice just to have that complete contrast from what was like quite dry at the beginning lots of notes to this sort of I don't know more kind of a watery texture I'd call it Because there's a whole range of articulations, aren't there? Because you've got that middle section where it's all like pedal and legato. And then in the beginning, he's quite precise with the articulation there as well, isn't he? Yeah, I remember he, he constantly was like, I don't want any pedal at the beginning at all. I want it to be dry. That has to be just super precise, super dry in that articulation. And he's so precise with the staccatos and the tenutos and things like that. But yeah, you just have to be so careful of it. Because even when playing it to him, he's like going, there's a tenuto there that you missed. <laughs> so, oh. But then when he put it all together, you can hear the difference and it works really well. But then I think that's what makes it... That's what appealed to me as well, because you have that beginning, is so like dry, and then you get to the middle and it's just... You can like, kind of let go, I think, a little bit. And then that kind of... The performer feeling of release in the middle section, I think, comes out for an audience perspective as well. And where does that go after the middle section? It has that really sort of the slow bits, the pauses, which it's very easy to be quite self-indulgent and just like let it go on forever and ever and ever. And someone told me they were like, it does go on for quite a long time, so just make sure you keep it together. But it, and then it kind of comes back to that beginning idea sort of slowly and speeds up back to the beginning, which just works really well, I think. I suppose the glue of the piece is the fact that it's being played on a piano and it's 
there is a kind of classical glue to it as well. That is the framework in which the piece is viewed rather than, oh, it's a jazz piece with a pygmy quotation. Yeah, I think the glue is kind of behind the music itself. The glue is in a philosophical domain. So, so when you don't accept the basic idea of the piece, of putting you know, various elements together and, again, the confrontational aspect of it, when you don't get this, when you don't accept this, you don't get it from the music itself. I believe it needs more than just musical approach, but it's very typical in my pieces. And I get the best response, best reactions, not just positive reactions, but appropriate reactions. People outside classical music, actually, maybe even outside music in general, like visual artists and writers. I guess those people who are not in musical world, they are maybe more sensitive to this aspect non-musical aspect of music, whereas those who are in music are more sensitive to music itself. So they are too busy. Uh, and of course, they are not just busy, but they are also uh, distracted, actually, by observing the musical content. And they don't get the rest of it. But maybe, I don't know, but maybe in my music, the rest is maybe important than the music itself. It's actually, you know, uh, that would explain also my enormous interest and my admiration in uh, Composers who are not really part of any school or like isolated, like Charles Ives, it's out of nowhere, like, you know, like... Uh... So you like the story around the music as much as the music? Because he's, he's got a great story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. But uh, no, no, no. I like the music which speaks about life, you know. It's just life itself. And I feel, of course, originality. It's enormously original. Although Shanachek, you know, the Czech composer, is the same. All composers love uh, Leo Shanachik, of course, but it's such a isolated genius. And 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 again, the the the, the psychology of his music—I don't know. Maybe maybe I got too far now, but I think it has something to do with really with uh, specific personalities. Again, outside the academic world or just official community, you know, artistic community. Charles Ives, you know, it's just. It's very funny, isn't it? I did the contemporary piano concert first, and that was kind of a bit of a trial, see how it went kind of thing. And because it's the first time, you're always a little bit more nervous about it. Um, that I feel like by the second two times so my recital felt... Well, I mean, my recital was nerve-wracking anyway because Eerie was sat in the audience. Um, but then, obviously, like, the no dice was kind of nice because people didn't know it at all. He wasn't there. I'd already played it a couple of times cause I, so I kind of knew it that it worked. Um, but, yeah, no, it was just kind of nice to be able to just go, oh, I'm just going to play it now and have fun with it. Thing. Do you prefer it when people don't know what you're about to play? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think because there's, I mean, you go and play a Bach played in Fugue and everyone, probably about 60% of the audience has already heard it before, knows how they like it 
played, they'll come up to you at the end and say, well, I preferred Glenn Gould's recording. And you're like, oh, good. <laughs> good for you. Um, so it's nice. And especially if they haven't heard it before, you can bring something new to an audience and providing they're sort of they're open-minded and they're ready for it. Yeah, it can be nice because they'll come up to you at the end and be like, that was a really cool piece. What's that? I want to know more about it. And um, yeah, it just feels nice that you can bring them something that it's completely new. And would you play it any differently if you knew they'd heard it before or not? Like, if they hadn't heard it, would you try and make certain things more obvious? Yeah, um, I'm not sure. I think... Hmm. I guess if they'd heard it before, I'd be more wary of sort of little kind of technical details, I think. Because <clears throat> even if they wouldn't, they wouldn't know what the score looked like or what you were playing right or wrong kind of thing... I think if they hadn't heard it before, it's giving them like an overall sense of the piece in general, just giving them the characters. Because the thing is, if, if an audience are, are listening to it, and especially if there's not many musicians in the audience as well, I mean, they're not going to be listening for, well, they played a wrong note there, or that rhythm wasn't quite correct. But if they hear a piece and it's either like moved them or sort of made them laugh or it's brought something to them, then I think that's more important than obviously making sure that there's little tiny details. But if obviously they've heard it before, then little tiny details can matter and think, people will be like, oh, that passage really well or kind of things like that. Yeah. I always find that really striking <laughs> when I'm at, especially new music concerts, because mm-hmm. you know that no one knows where the wrong notes are. And you just realise like how different the priorities are of the listener to the performer. Because yeah. the performer's got this ideal mm-hmm. of how it should be in their head. Yeah. Whereas the listener has a completely blank slate mm-hmm. and they think everything is on purpose kind of most of the time. Yeah. Most of the time. Yeah. And you can have this weird dynamic where the listeners really, really enjoyed it, but the performer's absolutely gutted. Yeah. But <clears throat> who is it for? You know, no, it's... Yeah, yeah. No, I remember in, in that same concert and I played the Calvine Bagatelles <clears throat> and I love those pieces anyway, but I remember the fifth one it just got to it, and for some reason, I just had a quite big memory lapse in the thing. But it's because it's so slow and kind of quite nostalgic, I guess. I remember just like improvising quite a lot of the end of it, and the, at the time, I was there going, "This is all wrong. You must be able to hear this is all wrong." But I didn't. I was like, "I'm going to stay in character. I'm going to do all this kind of stuff." And I finished, and people were just like, "That was great. I'm going to go listen to them again." And I was like, "Well, don't expect the same performance because it won't be." <laughs> But I think it, that's the thing, is it's like they didn't, had no idea and they enjoyed it anyway, so I think, yeah. And then I was like, well, yeah, I'm kind of guided that it wasn't true to the score, but at the same time, people enjoyed it, so. Yeah, people really enjoyed it, yeah. I'm going to go listen back to your version of Bagatelles now. <laughs> You're hearing it be like, what is she playing? <laughs> I love that though, because I suppose, you know, if you kind of like, you know, Mozart went up to a harpsichord and just made something up. Yeah. Whereas now we're like, this is how it goes. Yeah, exactly. And like, obviously there's places in between those two extremes, but mm-hmm. the idea that you might just improvise a bit if it goes wrong, it's yeah. kind of like, it's like your own cadenza. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm practically Mozart. Basically, that's, that's, the, that's the lesson of the story, isn't it? <laughs> oh, great. So, so you, you played at your recital mm-hmm. and Yuri was there. Yes, he was. Can you tell me about yeah, that, that day? Yeah, <laughs> I remember in one of the first few emails after I'd said, I love your piece, I've seen it on YouTube, could I get the score? And he basically replied going, when is your recital? Because I'd like to come. 
And, I mean, that was kind of freaky in itself. But it was like, well, this could be cool. And he came the day before, and I remember because he listened to it, um, and I played it to him, and he sort of went through a couple things. And then, yeah, and it was just really lovely because he, it was super chill. He, like, came the next day, just came, sat in the audience, listened to it. He was really nice because he was like, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much for playing my piece. So I was like, well, thank you for coming because <laughs> this has never happened to me before. Um, and the fact that he'd come all the way from Prague as well was quite, yeah, it was quite a big deal. Well, it's funny coincidence because my partner used to live there. He used to work there for a couple of months, like 10 years ago or something. So it was incredible coincidence. We actually, we had been waiting for such an opportunity for years. And I was like, no, 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 we have to wait. We have to wait, you know, until something happens. And then Jasmine came along and she told me, I'm going to play your piece. I was like, okay, that's it. We go. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> you, know, life, you know, that's that's just life. So we just had the best time visiting um, workplace. And, and Yorkshire, again, the trip, fantastic. Oh. I wasn't expecting Abe him to come over and listen to it and be, he was actually just really lovely and I think just more grateful to hear somebody play his piece really because he'd only ever had one other person play it in public. Jasmine is incredible. I mean, uh, she's so young and she can uh, not only play this, but I mean, technically, but to really understand. I really felt she understands and she's so enthusiastic about the whole thing. Really, I, I was I was impressed. And I only hoped, I only hoped she could play it again so that, you know, it's not just this occasion. So I'm, I'm happy that she found some opportunity. If anyone's interested in, um, in playing your piece, what should they do? Should they get in contact with you on your website? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I'm publishing the piece. So, and we are in digital age, so no need of hard copies. I just send them and uh, score in PDF and then they can print it out. But I would really, I would really like to, um, you know, get in touch with the people. And yeah, I think it's essential, again, to, to avoid misunderstanding and, you know, to, to, to respond, uh, you know, they, they can have questions. And... It kind of sets the relationship up right as well, doesn't it? If, if they get in contact with you about it and, and speak to you first rather than just clicking a, clicking a download button on the score. Yes, yes. So it's not an, an, an anonymous, but, you know, I'm a living composer, so that's the least I can do. <laughs> all right, that's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for Yuri Kaderabek and Jasmine Allpress for being so generous with their time. If you want to check out more of Yuri's work or perhaps even play one of his pieces, um, his website's in the podcast description. So go check that out. And if you want to hear more from Jasmine Allpress, uh, she plays with the Larissa Trio, who are a really exciting group. They've been doing some really cool stuff with dance. So to finish off the podcast, here's a full performance of Hindiish, written by Yuri Kaderabek, performed by Jasmine Allpress, and performed in June of 2018 at No Dice Collective's Soloist Concert. I'll see you in the next one where we hear about David and Greg's writer-composer collaboration about the end of the world for last Christmas.